Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On New Year's Eve, we watched following the brilliant suggestion from a stranger on Twitter, <laughs> said, if you, if you start watching this film <coughs> at 9.58 p.m. <laughs> and 11 <laughs> seconds, wait, if you start watching The Apartment, Billy Wilder's oh, The Apartment, at 9.58 p.m. and 11 seconds, Wonderful. they will start singing Old Lang Syne brilliant. at midnight. <laughs> right? So we did it, and it and was it brilliant. It's one it of my favourite films, anyway, but, but I'd never done it. And, and then... Um, Jonathan Coe said there was a screening in the late 70s on BBC Two of Sunset Boulevard, oh. which started at like 10.40, and sure enough, there's a New Year's Eve there is. party there is. There scene is. at hit at midnight. So clearly someone Fantastic. back then had gone, you know, this would be a good wheeze. So, uh, so that was good. Anyway. Hello and welcome to Backlisted. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us in the dressing room of a municipal concert hall somewhere in the Thames Valley, waiting for a sign from our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings dead authors and live readers together. (laughs) I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Arifa Akbar. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Welcome. Uh, to uh, Backlisted, and uh, Arifa, formerly literary editor at The Independent, Arifa is now the editor of Boundless, uh, Unbound's online magazine. Is that keeping you busy? Um, it's keeping, it's, it's making me slightly smug, because <laughs> it turns out it really is as good as we hoped and said and thought. And it has been incredibly hard work, it's only five weeks. But it looks beautiful. This is this is me blowing my own trumpet, but I feel I should because it's really a beautiful sight. But some of the essays have surprised me. They've sort of brought a lump to my th- throat and sort of made me cry a bit. Or Ella made Fitzgerald, Ali Smith was one of the best things I've read in a long, long time. Just beautiful. And I was communicating with her and she was really sick in bed. And then she filed this exquisite piece yeah. about Ella Fitzgerald through her playlist, 12 songs making a sort of mosaic of her Mm. life, her biography. It was a really cute way to do it, and she did it exquisitely as ever, very whimsically. So we had that, but we've had, you know, we've had our very own Dan Kieran writing about Prince in a very moving Mm. way. We've had we've had Amanda Craig reviewing Philip Pullman. We've you know we've had a number of and do you writers publish, that I love. Is Boundless published on a kind of rolling basis, or do you publish mm-hmm. every two weeks or every? We, we publish an essay um, every day. a day in every weekday. So we've we've got something new every day. And the beauty of this is that it's really eclectic. So one day you might get an essay on the politics of menstruation and the next day you get something highly literary and the next day you get something about having creative uh, writing workshops in in the Shatila refugee camp in Lebanon. You know, you you never know what you're getting. So so we mix it up a lot. What I'd love is give somebody like Annie Smith a chance to write on something that she wouldn't normally write on. So... That's, that's the and thing she flies with it and I've commissioned I commissioned Ali Smith to write for us at the Independent and she could do a maximum of however many thousand words where she, she could you know and she, she just she kept it to a thousand words or 1,200 words there but she could really I know and I loved, I loved Pretty Teenager last week yeah. who uh, uh, I mean a wonderful novelist but wrote a wonderful thing about how fiction appropriates classical myth to, yeah. to tell. I mean, it's, it's, it's been, it's a lovely thing. It's just every day there's something that's that's a little bit, I mean, it, totally not driven by any agenda either, which is what I love about it. Yes, well, arising out of this, talking about challenging and and something that, I mean, I think is deeply subversive, but also weirdly, I mean, there's nothing, this book that you're talking about today, that we're talking about today, Beyond Black by Hiram Motel, I think is the most 
is the oddest, most subversive, but apparently most familiar mm. subject matter of any modern novel I know. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But before we talk about that, we're going to talk, Andy. About yes. What? What have you? <laughs> what have I been, what reading, have you been reading in your holidays? Speaking, well, speaking of experimental uh, uh, fiction, I read a novel um, by Tony White, the novelist Tony yeah. White, called The Fountain in the Forest. And this is published by Faber and Faber. And I read it because a few months ago, our estranged former colleague, Matthew Clayton, uh, he's not, and that's a joke. He's not really estranged. I saw him five minutes ago, and, and uh, he seems pretty unestranged. He's unestranged, but he he said to me, "I think you would. Re- I've just read this book that I absolutely love, Tony White's new novel. I think you'd absolutely love it." And um, so I was reading that, and it is absolutely uh, terrific. And if you're a regular listener to Backlisted, there's a couple of reasons why I think it would appeal to you. One aspect of this novel is it's a police procedural novel set in London, and it's very reminiscent of Derek Raymond and Derek Raymond's Factory series. Which we love. Starting with He Died With His Eyes Open. Ending it is with. clearly with I Was Dora Suarez. So it's clear. Actually, no, that's not true. It doesn't end with I Was Dora Suarez. There's another one after that, the title of which now escapes me. But it, so it's very much in that there's a, a particularly gruesome murder. There's an account of a London policeman who operates within the law, but perhaps without the law as well. And so there's that element of it. It's a fantastic London novel, a book about London, London as it is now, London as it was 40 years ago. Not for nothing does it have a quote from Michael Moorcock on the front, author of Mother London, amongst other things. And Michael Moorcock says, Rejecting familiar influences of the past 20 years, White joins a handful of contemporary writers who have proven that the novel has never been more alive. He's a serious, engaging voice of the modern city. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a, a fantastic book about... about London as it is now and how it got to be like it is now. But it's also, it's quite a difficult book to talk about because I don't want to give too much away. But it is also inspired by Ulipo, by the, uh, uh, the movement co-founded by Raymond Quineau. So it's like a cross between Derek Raymond and Raymond Quineau. And Ulipo, um, the idea with Ulipo was that you would write fiction under a constraint. You would devise a constraint for yourself. Most famously, Perec's novel La Disparition, published over here as A Void by Harville, which is, which is a novel entirely written without recourse to the letter E. Uh, Brilliant. Translation by Gilbert Adair. By Gilbert Adair, right. And so Tony has given himself the constraint, a constraint with which he then doesn't sh- reveal to you until the end of the novel. So I don't want to say what it is to people. But it is perfect, John, because when you're reading the book, you you probably won't be able to work out what it is. And then when you get to the end of the book and Tony reveals what it is, it suddenly seems totally um, central to the structure, to the structure of the novel. It's not just like a nice idea but it totally uh, integrates with what the book is trying to do. And, and finally, and this I think is... This, I, I'm not going to read anything from it because I would rather just try and say what the, what the two things were that I really, really liked about the book. The first one is it's set in, mostly set in London in the here and now in a village commune in France in the 1980s and at the Battle of the Beanfield at Stonehenge later in the 1980s. And it moves around between those three time zones. And what, what, what the book does brilliantly is it connects social and political developments which seem on the surface to have little to do with one another in a way that indicates that something that happened in a field near Stonehenge in the mid-1980s impacts on life in London in 2017 in a way that no one could have foreseen, but you can trace a direct line back. Great. And the other thing that it does, and for me this is the, the thing I like most about the book, and I, I'm struggling to think of a novel that, uh, another novel that does this in quite this way. It gives you a protagonist in different contexts and at different points in their life and asks you, the reader, to repeatedly try and work out how much you approve or disapprove of their actions. 
So what the character, what the protagonist is doing at one point in their life, at one point in the book, you'll be rooting for them. And at another point, you'll be thinking, no, that's not, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's an antagonistic thing to do. Don't do that. And he's constantly asking you to switch sympathies between this one character. I, 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 it seems to be and can be enjoyed at, at, at the level of a thriller. And yet it does all these other fascinating things. And best of all, it's the first in a trilogy. So you can read, by the time the end you get to volume one, you think, oh, great, he's set up all these things, all these hairs are racing now. All these things are going to come back and visit this character, not just in the now, but at other points where you haven't yet encountered him. It's such a good book. See, I've, I feel I know what this book's about without having read it because I've just read an essay on it. I hate to do a product placement thing here, You're but we've it. got an essay in a couple of weeks on Alupu and this book and this author. So um, I'm, I can't wait to read it. It's, it's proper. That sound, it does sound... And I won't, I'm not reading it because, I, because actually, I don't again, totally understand. Let, let Tony do it. That Tony, just, I'm just saying, read the book and let Tony do the work for you. But all these interesting narrative and intellectual games being played. So, John, that's what I was reading. Um, what have you been reading? I have read a... Um, I've been reading a lot of collections of short stories recently, as you know, many of them by women, but this not by a woman, by a man, uh, Chris Power. Also, I have to say, from Faber and Faber, and, you know, chapeau, Faber and Faber, because I feel they are, you know, traditionally one of the great forces of original um, uh, fiction in in this country. And uh, Tony White and now this, I think, are... I mean, this to me And yes, also, can I I just say, and Faber published... um, Pachico. The Lucky Ones by Julian Pachico, which is one of my favourite books last year, so... Um, and I'm not going to get drawn into uh, the, I think, generally not helpful discussions about the failings of literary fiction. Literary fiction has been a, a has been failing. For, I've been in the book trade for 30 years, and that conversation has always been the same. There are periods when it seems to be doing better, and then, but generally, the truth is, first novels, difficult, interesting, challenging work. Uh, very few of them are rewarded by the sales that they deserve. Well, I hope that Chris Power's book will be read. It's called Mothers. It is, it's, it's, to me, it's a really interesting formal, formally because it's a collection of short stories. But there are three stories, the beginning, the middle, and the end, which have essentially the same. It's, it's the, the narrative arc of the whole book tells the story of one woman and her uh, husband and their relationship, and their relation, her particularly her relationship with her mother. She becomes a mother. It is a fat. It is not a slim collection. This is three hundred page short story collection. This is, this is as. I mean, I if I were you know Max Zabold, I would have probably called this a novel, because mm. what happens in between those three kind of straining posts are wonderfully tangential stories which somehow reflect on the main theme. I mean, if I'm going to cut to the chase, this is the best, most accurate, most moving presentation of depression I have ever read in literature. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's cumulative force because it doesn't... It, it's, there's nothing flashy about this book. It just builds up a, a kind of... It builds up the almost the sort of credibility to be able to talk about the untalkable, which is what happens when somebody kind of can't deal with their lives and goes off the rails, disappears, travels, can't deal with the, 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 the relationships in their lives. And I guess the, the, sto- the other stories in the books, stories from childhood, stories... There's an amazing story in here about a Rodney Dangerfield. The, I was going to say, it's on the back cover here. Stand up with Rice's blocking box upon his last so leg is a Rodney I'll, I'll just, Dangerfield. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I could easily have read... I'm going to read a tiny little bit from, from one of the earlier stories. <laughs> but I could have easily read from that bit that, that Rodney Dangerfield impersonator who has writer's block, who could only express himself through somebody else's creativity. And uh, it is... Oh, God, it's so painful. He, you know, he's, he's kind of minor... He ends up playing kind of frat boy sort of gigs. Rodney Dangerfield is sort of an alternative US comedian, beloved by, you know, uh, 
kind of cool, but also, you know, not, not Woody Allen, <laughs> let's be honest. And he has to put on his ridiculous makeup and does do this ridiculous routine, and he ends up being having the shit beaten out of him by a drunken... And the guy's 21st birthday party, and the, the guy whose party it is ends up beating him up because he's not Roger, Rodney Dangerfield. But he has, in the moment of his most deepest humiliation, he's suddenly the Donne for what his own work might be comes. So it is, of course, like a lot of story, collections, it's a, it's a book about writing, but it is it is about... It's as good as anything about the disconnection between couples. There's an amazing story about a couple who are out walking, um, and 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 they, uh, she wants to cross a stream, and the boyfriend doesn't want to cross a stream, and they end up going to a uh, to, to a hotel, and she doesn't really forgive the boyfriend for for having been so pusillanimous. But the main the main arc, which is a small a small girl, good word. a small girl, <laughs> a small girl, a small girl. Dysfunctional mother dies when she's young, and then it goes right through to the end. I won't give you, but it's 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 to me, it's a novel. I'll read you this, this little. It's an amazing one of the three bits of the, yeah. of the mother one, two, and three in the story is about Eva, Eva, who is Scandinavian, and she um, she decides that she's going to travel through Europe with a guidebook randomly behind the lighthouse. In a hollow that shelters it from the worst of the wind is an outdoor cafe. People are sitting in couples, trios and quartets at its trestle tables. She finds an empty table and orders a beer and a plate of squid from a waiter with drooping eyes like a bloodhound's. She looks back along the length of her walk into the north, beyond the cafe where the Pyrenees end. The sky is a high greyish blue. There are clouds out to sea. She finishes eating and lights a cigarette. She orders an espresso and takes out her guidebook a tattered brick that covers all of Europe. It is old. It belonged to her mother and has grown soft as a phone book from use. The pages are loose and she's lost several regions in transit. Because of its age, it is almost worthless as a source of information. Disconnected telephone numbers, inaccurate maps, descriptions of restaurants and bars that closed down long ago. Nevertheless, its contents fascinate Eva. Opening it at random, the way she has done since she was a little girl, she finds herself in the Baltic. It has three gulfs, she reads. Bosnia, Finland and Riga. She looks at the map. The sea, light grey. The land, dark grey. The sun is at its peak. She lights another cigarette and flips the book's pages, their movement stirring the silver grey flakes in the ashtray. She is somewhere in the Carpathians. She is in Provence. She is in Innsbruck. It is one of the pages that the book likes to fall open to as if prompting her. She looks at a black and white picture of grand old buildings lining a square festooned with sun umbrellas. Above the square looms a vast wall of wrinkled rock. And that kind of goes on. This is where her reverie breaks down. She's not sure who or what she's waiting for. The caption beneath the picture says, Innsbruck, the sophisticated capital of the Alps. Mm -hmm. She reads the brief description of the city, only half paying attention to words she's read many times before. Her fingers move across the map of Austria tracing the thin, crooked lines of its rivers. It's just, um, it's melancholic, but it is the cumulative effect of it. I kind of started thinking, yeah, it's good. And then by the end, I think, I think it is one of the, I, I think it is a, a really, really extraordinary. It's, a, it's really interesting. It's very good to also, can I say, to, to give the lie to the idea that only, the only good books published in September. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Sure, we just talked about two things which we think are both fascinating and original yeah. and, and I challenging think, and, and interesting. And, 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 and I can't give this I can't give this more, more. Now, here are our sponsors telling you what to do. The subject of plot is relevant to the book that we're here to talk about today, which is Beyond Black by Hilary Mantel. Now we're not going to spend as much time on this episode um, discussing Hilary Mantel because I'm assuming that lots of people who listen to Backlisted will know who Hilary Mantel is. <laughs> but Beyond Black is not uh, the best known of her novels. Arifa, when did, you, when did you first read Beyond Black? So I first quarter read it soon after, it was sort of about 2006, I reckon, and it was one of those books that wasn't recommended to me. It's a blank how I came to buy it. Who knows why I bought it, but I, I, maybe it was on a whimsy and I went into wherever I went into and bought it. 
and I must have read the back of it and thought, I fancy this. And I took it home and I'd, I read a quarter of it and it terrified me and I stopped reading it. And I thought, um, it didn't give me nightmares, but I just thought, this is the kind of dangerous book that I don't want to continue reading. And the reason why is this. I love frightening ghost stories. I love M.R. James. I, you know, I, I love all of the Baroque stuff, the macabre stuff. What I'm not so comfortable with is social realism with ghosts mm. and added to it. And the reason that is is because it's your world. You know, it's the M4, it's your back garden. And Beyond Black had that. It was completely ordinary suburban life, small lives in a way, quiet back streets, the retail park. And then these figures appear in those places. So that frightened me quite a lot. It's sort of, it's those, fr- I, 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 it reminds me of another book that I found terrifying for the same reason. It's Sarah Waters' The Little Stranger. And oh, there will always mm. be a scene which will frighten me to death because, and it's silly when I, I'm going to explain it to you and it's going to sound silly. And it's when um, one of the characters is looking at a mirror and looking at a mirror and looking at a mirror. And then suddenly, the mirror starts walking towards her. <laughs> and why that... I think I threw down the book at that point, Little Stranger. I thought, I hate this book. I'm going to stop it now. Because, you know, that could happen to my mirror. It's this sort of invasion of another world into your home. It's not... So Beyond Black, I stopped reading because it's not the haunted house story. It's, it's the ordinary house with hauntings living in it sitting on your sofa yeah, it's, so it's one of the things it, one of the things that's so good about it I think is it manages to well we'll come on to talk about this but it, that suburban environment it manages to suggest that beneath the concrete something much stranger is oozing and trying to break its way through all the time um, no. that but that absolutely but it's even more profound than that because I mean the premise of this book is so terrifying that there is no outside. You suddenly realise that the thing you think is, well, it'll all be fine when we die. That's an end. That's, a, that's the final narrative end. And then there's peace and rest. But this book, this book actually posits that, no, it's like, that's just... Mm. I mean, it, 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 the, 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 the terrifying claustrophobia. So we've, we all know books of claustro- suburban claustrophobia and... But the claustrophobia of this book is that, is that bad things that happen don't stop after you die. That the, <laughs> the repercussions of our actions do not stop after we die. That we never escape from, from, from the, the things that go wrong in our lives. It's, it's, I, I often wondered, I, I read it probably like you, I don't know, 10 years ago. I loved it, and I thought, I think Hilary Mantel is a genius, and I read quite a few of her other books, but not, weirdly, the ones that she became famous for. And then she was a bit like, for me, a sort of Louis de Bernier, who you think, this person's so good, why is she not winning prizes? And you realise with this book, which we've sort of stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest on Twitter today, um, and I was talking to Jenny Colgan about it, it's just people can't... This is dark. Well, as I as I said earlier, there are two types of people in the world: <laughs> those who love Beyond Black and those who are entitled to their wrong opinion. And you know, what <laughs> we, you this know is just endearing to I myself to people. But I completely you know. agree with that. And I kind of find that the people that don't like this book are really literal-minded people, and they're, they're the sort of I'm afraid they're the sort of people that probably. Um, wouldn't get on with in life. I really feel wow. that. I feel this well, has We're saying that, and I, let, I, me I, just, I, let me just intervene to say, and we're saying that as a mark of Aretha's passion rather than her well, okay, <laughs> passing so, judgment so, on, so, you know, I anyone mean, who's listening. But um, this book, I feel very, very, I feel a very personal thing about this book, which is yeah. when I read it, for a long time, I felt that books, novels were written out of a sort of, literary perception of life and they were to do with you know big themes and I mean not not that any of that was a problem but I felt that my life shitty 
greasy back gardens with decaying paper bags, horrible <laughs> estates with idiots and nasty houses. And I just felt that the sort of that the whole, the actual content of my life, nobody had ever written about accurately, let alone turned it into what I think this is, which is a magnificent yes, work of I art. I mean, and, and then when I read this book, I thought, all of this stuff that I sort of, in some part of my, why does nobody ever write about this? Why does nobody ever write about well, the, that, the shitty cul-de-sac? Why does nobody write yeah. about the terrible, and the stuff, I mean, we're, about these horrible, I mean, there's a, I'll read a bit in a minute about, about the, the, the fig and pheasant, you know, these hotel, <laughs> which I've worked in, you know, yeah. in bars, yeah. and you think, who comes yeah. here? Who, whose life it, who has their wedding reception in a shithole like this? Well, I, we've and said who, this, and, and we, that's and that's what this book is better than any book we, I've ever read at, at Capture. We've said this before, but when we were doing, or I've talked about this before, but when we were Suburbia. doing our, our Croydon Till I Die gigs, and we would ask the audience, name me a great novel set in the suburbs. And the truth of it is, there are very few. Yeah. Most novels are set in the city or the country. Right. And this could be this the greatest. Is, this is the greatest I think it is. novel set in 21st century suburban Britain, and England. It is but what and utterly relentless. It is, yeah, it yeah. is not a trace of sentimentality but, in this But Aretha, you mentioned The Little Stranger. It's very interesting to me that you mentioned The Little Stranger. That is my favourite of Sarah Walters' novels, right? Beyond Black is my favourite of Hilary Mantel's novels. And yet I am well aware that there is a um, strong... Uh, intelligent uh, set of voices in the case of both those novels and novelists who see these novels as aberrations in their otherwise um, solid careers. So lots of people who are regular readers of Sarah Waters' work, uh, The Little Stranger is their least favourite of her books. Because it was and, her one ghost story. And, 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 yes, yeah. and Beyond Black similarly yeah. seems to elicit very strong responses from readers for or against. I've and in a way, our panel here today is not representative mm. because we all think this book is self-evidently a masterpiece. But so I find know, it quite difficult to get into the head of somebody who thinks, but no, it doesn't work or it's boring or... Yeah, but within within the chronology of her books, it's it's not an aberration. Her first novel, um, Every Day is Mother's Day, was about a mother and daughter, this connection between mother and daughter. I feel Beyond Back is really about mother and daughter and origins and where we come from and mothers and what they do to us and the damage of childhood, but the, the ambiguous, extremely powerful love towards dysfunctional damaged mothers so I'd, mm. and she and, and Hilary Mantel has That's written about suburbia again and again I know she's also written magnificent historical fiction but this is very much in keeping with the best of her work just because we know her from those two man booker winning astonishing historical novels doesn't mean that she can't do this very well what I think she does with suburbia slightly um, make it completely original to us so how I've read and consumed suburbia in literary fiction is god it's boring god it's soulless this is what suburbia being on the fringes of metropolitan identity and life can do to you it leaves you on the fringes of life as an outsider and a suburban outsider but she is giving suburbia this rottenness that you talk about john a kind of depth a life yes. and depth well, depth so it's depth. so right it, so right it, yeah it, 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 what it is what it is that's so dark and brilliant about it is that the veneer so Alison Hart the psychic we haven't really talked about what the book is but the book is about a medium yeah. a medium um, you know it so there's a sort of jokey veneer which is uh, I mean it's brilliantly done you know it's a sort of Mr Memory act she goes and she does that thing and she she but you get the sense and this is we'll talk about this more that actually the narrative doesn't make fun of the act and the narrative, no, the we're narrative gonna... and we're going to go on to this because of what Hilary Mantel and her own life mm. but what you get is that what she is is this sort of large blousy mm. scented she wears these opals she's this incredibly apparently almost she's sort of t too maybe too big to be yeah. sexy but she's what she is is kind and warm and generous mm. and, and yet the horror the 
utter, which is revealed, I mean, just in terms of the way this book is structured, the horror of her childhood yeah. and the squalor. This is not suburbia. Mm-hmm. So what's, what, what Mantel is almost mm-hmm. saying is that suburbia is this sort of like, and I know this, I know this from... This is the history of the 20th century. People who were in 19th century squalor who got moved into suburb, suburbia as council estates. This is, and yet you can never quite forget mm. the, 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 you know, the stuff that you're escaping from. That's what makes this book, I mean, it, it's, people who read this book for plot are probably going to be disappointed because that's, I would say that... And yet I wonder about that. I think it's got a great plot. It's got a great plot. I don't even think, you know... Okay, so listen. So, before we go any further, Arifa is going to read for us in a moment something, uh, I hope. Uh, But um, (laughs) From the book. We've got some clips of Hilary Mantel. I found yesterday an interview from 2005 when this book was published with Eleanor Wachtel um, for the CBC show Writers and Company. And unusually for an, an hour-long interview, this is an interview that talks for ten minutes about the new novel and then goes through the highlights of her, the career. This is an hour about Beyond Black. If you like wow. this novel, if you want to listen who likes this novel, seek out this CBC interview from 2005. It's online with Henry Mantel. We're going to listen to two or three clips from it. Here's the first now. It's relevant to what um, John was just talking about. When... I look at where I live, which is about 25 miles outside London, in a dormitory settlement, a commuter town. It's the kind of place where nobody really comes from. And the link between our landscape and our memory has been cut. And I think that the psychic business, and business is booming, is is driven by a similar imperative. Who am I? And where do I fit? Where do I fit in this landscape? And where do I fit in the pattern of the universe? Um, People have so much lost their roots, lost their families. And again, I think there's a pervasive fear of feeling that people's lives are out of their own control. I'm very struck by the sense that if people do form any sense of the collective, it's usually in some ugly way. It's usually a moral panic. Uh, Let us all stand together against the asylum seekers. Let's define us against the immigrants. And that was 2005. Amazing. I mean, that, that made the hairs on my arm stand up on end when I heard that yesterday. Anyway, Arifa, you were going to um, it's, it's, read us something. Yeah, right? and it's, it's only a short passage, and it's the first time we see Alison, or Al, as, as she's called throughout the book, um, do her stuff on stage. This, the, this, the, the entire no- novel is about Alison um, being a medium and forming a bit of a peculiar but quite an intense friendship with another um, outsider kind of woman called Colette. And so they become, Colette becomes her assistant, and this is, this is Alison going on stage. Or manager. Or manager. <laughs> she, yes, exactly. She corrects that when she's called the assistant. She walked out into the light. The light, she would say, is where we come from, and it's to the light we return. Um, through the hall ran small detonations of applause, which she acknowledged only with a sweep of her thick lashes. She walked slowly right to the front of the stage, to the taped line. Her head turned, her eyes searched against the dazzle. Then she spoke in her special platform voice. This young lady, she was looking through Rose back. This lady here, your name is? Well, Leanne, I think I have a message for you. Colette released her breath from the tight space where she held it. Alone, spotlit, perspiringly slight, Alison looked down at her audience. Her voice was low, sweet and confident, and her aura was a perfectly adjusted aquamarine, floating like a silk shawl around her shoulders and upper arms. Now, Lee, I want you to sit back in your seat, take a deep breath and relax. And that goes for all of you. Put your happy faces on. You're not going to see anything that will frighten you. I won't be going into a trance, and you won't be seeing spooks or hearing spirit music. She looked around, smiling, taking in the rose. 
so why don't you all sit back and enjoy the evening? All I do mm. is I just tune in. I just listen hard and decide who's out there. Now, if I get a message for you, please raise your hand, shout up, because if you don't, it's very frustrating for the spirits trying to come through. Don't be shy. You just shout up or give me a wave. Then my helpers will rush over to you with the microphone. Don't be afraid of it when it comes to you. Just hold it steady and speak up. One of the things that I remember when I first read this book, which I absolutely loved about it, was the idea that for Alison, she does have second sight. She is surrounded by spirits. But yet, in order to go out and make a living and be a medium in that context, she also has to have access to a load of other skills which are nothing to do with the spirit world. So what she tells people might or might not be based on what she can see. And I, 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 it remind, the, the, the comparison, funnily enough, we've talked about this book before, but the comparison for me is, was with the description of wrestling in the wrestling. Yeah. You know, is, is it real? Is wrestling fixed? Well, it is fixed, but guess what? It also hurts. hurts yeah. But it's it's both the things simultaneously. That's exactly. I mean, I think that I think that I think the thing that is this is not what's so interesting. We'll come on to it again. Again, that she's not using this as a as some sort of metaphorical sort of structure in order to tell some kind of um, clever story. That that this is a genuine. This novel is a genuine attempt to understand the complexity of consciousness and of, you know, our place. It is when she says our place in the universe. This is Hilary Mantel is is Alison and Colette are you know as richly detailed and imagined as any characters in in literature. I think they are, and their relationship is so complicated. And and complicated, and she never takes uh, the easy path yeah. with their relationship. Could, that, you know, it's the opposite of a buddy movie well, that they let, don't let, they let, don't let, fall in I, love with I, one another. They read, fall can out I, can with I one read, another. Can I read the blurb on this? this yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Terribly, I think that is a beautiful. Mm. Um, the tarot card cover is great. It's beautiful, and that yeah. I think is not. But this is this is the problem with literary fiction. In one paragraph, ladies and gentlemen. Alison Hart, a medium by trade, tours the commuter belt of London with her flint-hearted sidekick Colette, passing on messages from dead ancestors. But behind her, plump, but behind her plump, smiling persona, is a desperate woman. Well, no, uh, actually, no. The <laughs> next life holds terrors that she must conceal from her clients, and her own waking hours are plagued by the spirits of men from her past. They infiltrate her house, her body and her soul, and the more she tries to be rid of them, the stronger and nastier they become. Well, up yeah, to a that, point, Lord Copper. Not bad. I think that's not bad, actually, John. I think that's no. not... You know, you're trying to boil but, down a, a complicated book into what a paragraph... What you're trying to do is, is, to, get sell, to, buy is to sell something yeah. that is really, really, really difficult to explain. Let's just... Let's just yeah, another, sorry, Another bit of Hillary. Okay. Let's just, yeah. let's just hear... This is a clip about... of. of the idea about, um, I suppose, whether you would say, should we believe in ghosts? Should we believe in spiritualism? Scepticism is actually not as clean as it sounds. And I think a lot of the trouble is that sceptics say it doesn't stand up as a science. Well, of course it doesn't, but their music doesn't stand up as a science. It's not a science, it's an art. And I think in some circumstances it's a healing art. I, I, I think it, it, it certainly does a job of consolation sometimes. But trying to work out whether it's true or false, probably to be, make a better analogy, it's like trying to work out whether psychotherapy is true or false. It's not really the question. The question is, is it useful? Is it exploitative? Is it manipulative? And what are people's motives for engaging in it? Well, one of the interesting things to know about Hilary Mantel is that she grew up in a house where uh, her family n- knew there were ghosts in the home. So, you know, n- take note of the word knew rather than believed mm. that there were. Mm. And in my fantastic um, paperback 
copy of the book, there's an interview, there's a series of interviews that took between her and others, and in it she says, when I was a child, I believed our house was haunted, and so worryingly did the grown-ups. I was often very frightened, and the imprint of that fear stays with me, but I try to use it constructively now. So on the one, there's layers of the ghost story here. So on the one hand, I think how Hilary Mantel makes the unbelievable believable uh, and, and just works with the assumption that what Al is seeing is there and true is because Hilary Mantel herself mm-hmm. believes it's true, that these fiends, that the spirit guides and all the rest of the things, the people from the, d- the dead that Al sees, they're just there and it's real. So there's that layer of the ghost story. But I also think in what Al does on stage is, is akin to sort of what Shirley Jackson said of, you know, her interest in tarot and occult, as she said, was a way of embracing and channeling female power at a time when women in America often had little control over their lives. And what I think Al is doing is giving people narratives, uh, shaping lives. And in a way, it's about, I think the book is about, and the ghosts are about, our pasts our grandparents, our dead mothers and fathers, where we've come from, who those people were. Um, Where we come from is one of the most essential questions of this book, I think. And another layer is the fact that this book is not really about ghosts, but about the past that will never leave us, the damage of our past, the damaged part of our past that continues to linger in our present. In a, in a 2005 interview, that, uh, review that Faye Weldon uh, reviewed this book, in, just when it had come out, and she said, this is a book out of the unconscious, where the best novels come from. This is a book out of the unconscious. It's, it's where, our, you know, it's, it's this thing that we take the past with us especially the trauma of the past and you know the abuse here reminded me a little bit of um, Hanya Yanagihara's last book this immense book A Little Life and it was another all, very divisive book another yeah, very divisive people who absolutely loved it and people who couldn't stand it and it was about a, a man a very successful man as an adult who was badly abused sexually abused ritualistically sexually abused in his childhood however distant he becomes from that childhood however powerful and impressive and achieving he becomes in the world that past is a haunting and he's eventually defeated by it you know and she's written another another version except that haunting is literal those men the fiends that that Alison is haunted by were actually men in her childhood in that terrible abusive childhood home that's what's so moving about the book because her persona is She's always trying to do good actions. She's always trying. She's trying to pull good out of the. And her mother, who is this sort of demonic oh. character, uh, mm. uh, it's just a brilliant thing. She said, "Why did you not take your mother's name?" And her mother's called Emmeline Cheatham. And she said to she says to Colette, "Well, go go figure." <laughs> but it's just, can I, it's just a l- yeah. lovely little book, which is. There are things you need to know. This is this is obviously uh, Ali Al talking to, in a way talking to herself. There are things you need to know about the dead. She wanted to say, things you really ought to know. For instance, it's no good trying to enlist them for any good cause you have in mind, world peace or whatever, because they'll only bug you about. They're not reliable. They'll pull the rug from under you. They don't become decent people just because they're dead. People are right to be afraid of ghosts. If you get people who are bad in life, I mean cruel people, dangerous people, why do you think they're going to be any better after they're dead? But she would never speak it, never, never utter the word death if she could help it. And even though they needed frightening, even though they deserved frightening, (laughs) she would never, when she was with her clients, slip a hint or tip a wink about the true nature of the place Beyond Black. Oh, that's so good. I I love. I mean, that is the kind of. Come on, people who don't like this book, (laughs) listening to this. What's the matter with you? Like it. Come on. I love the paradox of her ghosts. So the, the 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 apparitions, the ghosts that she sees are these people that are actually very like corporeal beings. They they burp, they swear. They're not changed at all. They're not these ethereal they beings. They play with they're, their genitals. They play with Keith, their genitals. Did you not Keith think... Capstick, did you not think... Do you think... Did yeah. you not... I, I had a moment where I thought, George Saunders has obviously must have read 
You must have read it, this there, book. There is There's a, a lot of link. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. You know, it's worth saying about this book that this is Hilary Mantel's ninth novel. Uh, it was published in 2005, and um, her previous novel was called The Giant O'Brien, and yeah. that was published in 1998. So between The Giant O'Brien and Beyond Black, seven years, she published a book of short stories called Learning to Talk and a memoir called Giving Up the Ghost. And she quite explicitly has said about Giving Up the Ghost and Beyond Black that having revisited traumatic events in a memoir and Giving Up the Ghost, she then wanted to go back and deal with them again in fiction. Mm. And so Beyond Black is an attempt to go back over the territory, but, but almost what had been raised by the memoir is then being processed in the novel. She says in that interview at the end that we've been listening to, we've just, she says, I've got an idea for what I want to do next, but this is like the end of something. This novel is like yeah. the end of a, of a cycle in my writing, and what I want to go on and do next is something different. Isn't that interesting? And, what, and that next novel yeah. is Wolf Hall, yeah. four years later. So you can sit now. I always used to think about Hilary Mantel, and it is said of Hilary Mantel that she never writes the same book twice, that she's a, a novelist who was difficult to sell <laughs> because she'd write a book about the French Revolution, but then she'd write a book about a sensitive, or then she'd write a book called Flood. Uh, uh, I read Flood this week, yeah. which is a great favourite of Sarah Perry's, the novelist Sarah Perry's. That's totally different. That could have been written by a different writer entirely. And yet, as you say, Aretha, actually looking back now at these 11 novels and 15 books, she does go come, like all great novelists do, back to the same subjects again, but try and find different ways to animate them. What's so interesting about Wolf Hall and, and Bring Up the Bodies is they rely on an entirely different, I think, novelistic technique, and they're trying to achieve different results. And she's so good at both of them. But She's such a good writer. But a similar way in, the, in which the characters in Wolf Hall have conversations almost with their ancestors yeah. and the people from Yes, the yeah, there is that, yes. I, I, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's slightly kind of ridiculous, but I was thinking that Dickens, who writes David Copperfield and Great Expectations, is sort of weirdly also the Dickens that writes Tale of Two Cities and... Um, you know, the, you feel with Mantel, actually, she's that kind of level of artist. She's these, this, there's no doubt that Beyond Black and the memoir are, are, are kind of, they're from the darkest matter, yeah. dredged up. Mm, yeah, yeah. From, and yet she's able in the two Wolf Hall books to be a brilliantly, I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know. I mean, I, 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 I haven't read. Wolf Hall. I read Wolf Hall last I know, weekend. I know, which is great. <laughs> I'm I reading have, Bring Up the Bodies I have right read, now. I have read some of Wolf Hall, but not all of it. And I've watched <gasps> the TV. But I think, I don't think, I may mean, be fascinated to know, could you back form Beyond Black from your reading of Wolf Hall? I'm no, not sure that no. you could. But In the you, same way, that I think if you read and yet, Taylor Two Cities, you wouldn't get great yeah, expectations yeah, yeah. necessarily. But, but if you look back to a few years ago when she, she wrote Giving Up the Ghost, which is all about her life yeah. and upbringing and, the, and you, you, you regard the fact that her father left when she was 11 uh, her stepdad moved in um, you kind of see the bad mother here dramatised yeah, bad yeah. mother you see the searching for the father Al searching for her father Al again and again says to her prostitute mother who, who, who was my father, who is my father her mother can't tell her her mother can't locate a father for her and you can sort of see that yeah. in the memoir and I know you know it's not a literal seeing but it's a it's a dark dramatization of family origins looking for parents Colette is is realizes her, her, her uncle is actually her father that there's fathers if, missing yeah, fathers yeah. and mistaken uh, uh, identities and if, you want, for fathers. if you want to I've never read anything quite as the the fear that Morris her spirit guide with just a tiny little bit just if if yeah. If you want to sort of <laughs> define unheimlich, you know, the idea of that there's something that is so wrong and so uncomfortable and so difficult, 
Ho, said Morris, you don't fry me, girl. If you go and work in the chemist, I shall make myself into a pill. If you get a job in a cake shop, I shall roll myself into a Swiss roll and spill out jam at opportune moments. If you try scubbing floors, I'll rise up, splosh out of your bucket and a burst of black water causing you to get the sack. Then you'll be wheedling me around like you used to. Oh, Uncle Morris, I've no spending money. Oh, Uncle Morris, I've no money for my school dinners. I've no money for my school trip. And all the time, going behind my back with the same sob story to MacArthur and whining for Swiss to Keith too generous by half that's Morris Warren the day I was taken over there wasn't five bob in my pocket I was taken over and I don't know how taken over with money owing to me Morris began to whimper and this oh, is this sort of little little nasty well if so you're, if you're trying to if you're trying to just, how does the past how are we never ever get to get away from the past mm. it's brilliant she kind of personifies that the, the, the sticky, horrible, you can never get away. You know, wherever you're looking, there he is. Little, horrible little... Let, we've, we've got one last um, clip. And the, the reason I found this fascinating is because she talks... Well, you're here, but she talks explicitly about the link between the main characters in the book and the, the bigger picture she was trying to write about. The medium was working really hard that night. It was a man, he was overweight, he was perspiring, he was breathing heavily. He was going through the last hours of all these these unfortunate spirits. And the audience sat there like a, well, like a basket of potatoes, really. They looked completely wooden. He wasn't getting anything back. I began to feel sorry for him. And then he came to a young girl of about 17. And he said he had a message from her grandmother, but he couldn't quite get the name. And, you know, he began, is it Margaret, is it Marjorie, is it Mary? I'm getting an M. And she said to him she didn't know her grandmother's name. And that really shocked me. And at that point, I began to be as much interested in the audiences as the psychics. And... Then I saw that this this theme really knitted into a condition of England novel, so the whole project grew. Now, I, a condition of England novel. I'm going to read you my favourite paragraph from Beyond Black. And I want you... And, and I'm addressing the, the listeners, listeners who love this book, listeners who are not so keen on this book. You know, the, one of the criticisms of this book is that it is sneering at suburbia yeah. but I totally agree with what Arifa was saying that it's not sneering it is treating it with dispassionately and with depth I will read you my favorite paragraph and I would ask everyone around listening to this gathered at the table and quote at home <laughs> at home imagine what Martin Amis would have done with this paragraph and then you'll see the difference in the approach This is quite late in the book. The fig and pheasant, under a more dignified name, had once been a coaching inn, and its frontage was still spattered with the exudates of a narrow, busy A-road. In the 60s, it had stood near derelict and drafty, with a few down-at-heel regulars huddled into a corner of its cavernous rooms. In the 70s, it was bought out by a steakhouse chain and Tudorised. Fitted with plywood oak-stained panels and those deep-buttoned settles covered in stain-proof plush of which the Tudors were so fond. It offered the novelty of baked potatoes wrapped in foil with butter or sour cream and a choice of cod or haddock in breadcrumbs accompanied by salad or greyish and lukewarm peas. With each decade... As its ownership had changed, experiments in theming had succeeded each other until its original menu had acquired retro chic and prawn cocktails had reappeared. (laughs) Plus there was bruschetta, there was ricotta, there was a junior menu of pasta shapes and fish bites and tiny sausages like the finger that the witch tested for plumpness. (laughs) There were dusty ruched curtains and vaguely William Morris wallpaper washable, but not proof against kids wiping their hands down it, just as they did at home. In the sports bar, where smoking was banned, the ceilings were falsely yellowed to simulate years of tobacco poisoning. It had been done 30 years ago, and no one saw reason to interfere with it. Now, 
It's we and John had chosen <laughs> listeners. John had chosen the exact same passage because, for exactly the same reason, it's it's precise and it's funny, but it isn't it isn't taking the piss. It's saying no. this is the reality of condition of England. Yeah. That's great. You've got to read a piece now, right? And I'm going to read a piece, sort of leading on, a sort of state of the nation piece. And if you begin to Look at um, Hilary Mantel's work, you know, in combination. You can see it talking to each other. So I'm going to read a passage in which she talks about Princess Diana's death. And, of course, if any... Which well, is most bit, of which us... Is, uh, it, it, the thing is, it's ripe. It's brilliant comedy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, because all the, all the psychics are like, oh, my God, this yeah. is the big one. This is the big <laughs> one. Are we going to channel Diana? And, you know, of course, that passage, to me, talked to the essay, monumental essay she wrote last year in The Guardian about on the 20th anniversary about Diana. And she said, for some people, being dead is only a relative condition. They reek more than the living do. After their first rigour, they reshape themselves, take on a flexibility in public discourse. And, of course, that's what Princess Diana did for so many wow. years. But, you know, this was... this well, was That is the terrifying premise of this book. This is the... Te- yeah, and, and, and Diana, in a way, sort of manifests it and epitomises it. But a passage from the book... Um, and, and this is the day of Diana's funeral Colette's eyes were on the road in the passenger seat Alison twisted over her shoulders to look at Morris in the back kicking his short legs and singing a medley of patriotic songs <laughs> as they passed a bridge policemen's faces peered down at them pink sweating ovals above the sick glow of high-vis jackets Stubble-headed boys, the type who, in normal times, heave a concrete block through your windscreen, now jab the mile air with bunches of carnations. A ragged bedsheet, grey-white, drifted down into their view. It was scrawled in the crimson capitals, as if in virgin blood. Diana, queen of our hearts. You'd think they'd show more respect, Alison said, not flap about their old bed linen. Dirty linen, Colette said. She washed her dirty linen. It comes back on you in the end. Mm. They sped a mile or two in silence. I mean, it's not as if it's exactly a surprise. You didn't expect it to last, did you? Not as if she was exactly stable. If she'd been in real life, she'd have just been the sort of slut who'd who'd end up with her arms and legs and left luggage lockers and her head in a bin bag in Walthamstow. (laughs) Too soon? (laughs) But of so, course, we should say that so, in, later in the novel, Diana manifests manifest herself. Her, we don't want to say too many spoilers about how she, what she says yeah. and how she appears. But it seems to me that one of the great things about the book, one of the themes of the book, is the spirit of Diana, as in what we what we might think, versus the spirit of Diana. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 show that Alison puts on for her punters versus the reality of the spirit world is like the posthumous um, um, worship of Diana versus this very confused woman who manifests herself to yes. um, Alison. And, and, and I think that the thing that you get is, if just from that little pat, is just that sense of claustrophobia. Like I say, that, oh my God, if... If, if death isn't if death isn't the end then there's no end and then it's just it, it, and I think a lot I honestly think a lot of people find that that's the thing that, that they can't take I, I agree because I think I, I love it about this book because I love darkness but I feel <laughs> that this book has got no salvation there's no <laughs> salvation in life after death because yeah Life after the death seems to be dismally yet more life. You know, she makes a point. At the <laughs> she makes a point at the beginning about how banal the banal things that dead people, the messages yeah, she gets, are actually really dull. They're really yeah. they're boring messages because she says people in life, if they were boring, they don't change in in death. They don't become interesting <laughs> and glamorous. They stay dead, really quite dull. And I think there's that sense of. There is no heaven, and there certainly isn't a God, because, you know, she inquires, she asks Morris at one point. But there is a devil. There is a devil, but there's no God. Morris says to her, oh, God's, he's not somebody I've seen. And so you get this sense of this eternal beyond black, this eternal sort of dismal prosaic life going on and on and on with Morris fiddling with his flies and burping and swearing but but n- not the paradise not the salvation none of that not not the 
beautiful ghostly ghosts, but these sort of creatures of of the world. That flesh, it's it, they're really very lifelike. You know, maybe they, that's maybe that's what we've maybe we've answered why some people don't like yeah. this book. I think the book is like all great literary fiction. It's what both. it does is it is it marries uh, in a, a, a huge range of imagination mm. with absolutely um, pinpoint <gasps> accurate uh, obser- observation and description. So the bits that we've talked about for the last hour are basically a combination of um, noting what the real world is like and imagining what the spirit world yeah. is like in terms that relate to one another. I'm yeah. getting, I'm getting some, uh, I'm getting some, I'm <laughs> receiving now. I think from the spirit realm that we're about, we're about twenty minutes over. over. So um, I think possibly that is as good a point to end as any. Thanks hugely to Arifa to the, our genius producer, Matt Hall, and once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, Facebook at Backlisted, and our, our page on the Unbound site, uh, which is Boundless. In fact, on the Boundless site, Boundless forward slash Backlisted. Um, if you use iTunes to listen to Backlisted, we'd be pathetically grateful if you could rate us or even leave a review. Um, five stars, preferably. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, from the other side, goodbye and good night. Never forget, other opinions are available. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.